there is something wasteful about the curating of flowers. The resources required to grow the Calico's rooftop garden are astounding, but I would expect nothing less from the overindulged, overbearing, overdramatic citizens of Upper. If it's not flowers, it's food. If it's not food, mods. If not mods, it's songs or books or fountains, or any number of things that are unnecessary and frivolous. The power used to run one bar like the Calico could run a lower apartment building, but no one bats an eye when the lights go up and the singer takes the stage. What is it that captivates these people so? A song is nothing more than a series of pitches. Pitches that are replicated in the screeching of the train on its tracks. The groaning of the metal supports the buzz of a wasp stinger. But they do not call that music. It is all a cacophony of sound, a wall of noise, a screaming. But no one kneels to that tune. No one deifies the city that plays this song. The things people will do for the frivolous waste they worship is not echoed back onto the spinning background of the city of two. But it may be that this squander, this lavish rot, this worship is not fit for a city, but for a deity. Not suitable for the trains that ferry you to and from, but for an idol. Yes, you can keep your praise and your devotion. And you can bear the twisted ramifications, the rotten underbelly. You can deal with the deluded, fallacious, corrupted parishioners that come with it. The Calico was a bar unlike any other, thriving on the streets of Upper with a mixed patronage of Upper and Lower. It was an accomplishment in a city that rewarded assimilation. I stood beneath the elegant neon sign of a cat and tapped out my pipe before ducking inside. I'd gotten a message earlier that day from Kitty's manager and only long-term employee, Ferdy, that he had something he wanted to talk to me about. Given that it hadn't been a direct message from Kitty, I was suitably curious. Also, I'd never turned out an excuse to visit the Calico. Inside was filled with plush red fabrics and dark wood, mellow lighting, and flowers. Flowers all over the place. The Calico was one of the few places I could afford to be in that grew any kind of plant. One of Kitty's side gigs was producing different floral elixirs, but I honestly think that Kitty just liked having a roof garden and would have done anything to justify its existence. Kitty was currently on stage, wrapping up a set, 
wearing a red sequin dress that sparkled in the stage lights, with elbow-length black gloves, and her hair piled on top of her head in some kind of strange, extravagant hairstyle. I caught sight of Ferdy waiting in a back booth, actively filling out something on his tablet. He had dark skin and thick black hair pulled into a bun, with a pencil-thin mustache and an impeccably tailored suit. He gestured for me to sit as he finished typing and put away the tablet. There was already a drink waiting for me. Chilled glass, floral garnish, the whole ten. Hello, Ferdy. This for me? Chase, I hope you don't mind. It's your usual. You know my usual? I know every regular usual. What would Kitty do without you? She would thrive just the same. You're too kind. I am honest. Fair enough. Tell me, honest man, why isn't Kitty at this meeting? She's been very busy lately, more so than usual. The upcoming release of her new song, you see. I didn't want to worry her if this wasn't something to be worried about. What's got you worried? Funny enough, he's the regulars. You having problems with them? Not exactly. Kitty pointed out to me that a few of our regulars have been noticeably absent, one of which is even a major donor to the bar's garden operations. Of the three that we have noticed the absence of, I've only been able to find one, Charles Everly. Where'd you find him? Well, in the hospital. What? What happened? We don't know. He's currently in intensive care and is unresponsive. Comatose. I don't know what happened, but from what I could get the doctors to tell me, the man had escaped from what looked like a butchering. A butchering? That's the best way I can describe it, Jack. He was missing pieces, I believe, his hand and an eye, maybe part of a... I, I, I get it. By the Redeemer. I know that I am perhaps being paranoid, but given that I was unable to track down the other two, and that their wires haven't seen hide nor hair of them either, after what happened to Charles, I fear the worst. Yeah, I can see why. Can you look into this? Yeah, Ferdy. I'll, I'll see if I can track down your regulars. Just give me their names and addresses. Thank you, Jack. I'll send them to you. Thank you. Thank you, my lovely listeners, my beautiful fans. You know I love you. And you know my next album is gleaming, glimmering, just above the horizon. Don't forget to pick up your copy and have a wondrous rest of your night in the calipari. You should also probably tell Kitty, you know. I'm not particularly good at lying to her, and you know it's just a matter of time before she finds out. I know. Nothing happens under this roof that Kitty doesn't know about. Speaking of, I'd better go say hello. If she found out I was here and didn't... Well, let's just say I'm really not that into being yelled at. Understandable. I believe you know the way back to her rooms. Yeah, I'll be in touch, Ferdy. Thank you, Jack. No problem. I fought my way through the crowd and nodded to the bouncers at the doors that led deeper into the back rooms of the calico. Jack. Clint, how's it been? 
crazy. The new album's got everyone wound up, including Kitty, so, you know, be careful. Good advice. The hallway was long, and I moved past the kitchens, the guest dressing room, the staff area, and rounded a corner with an embellished doorway at the end. The door itself was thrown open, and I could see Kitty's glittering dress flashing in the light of the room as she stormed around. I left on my armoire, and the scarf, the scarf, it should be hung on that hanger where I stopped in the hallway, immediately thinking that I should turn and leave. When I made eye contact with Kitty as she stepped into the doorway to yell at one of the cowering staff members. Jack, the Redeemer sent you in my time of need. Come in. What? Kitty, maybe we could stop yelling for just a moment. They have been stolen, Jack. What's been stolen? My perfume and my orange scarf. I know that they aren't simply misplaced. They are gone. All right, all right. Well, you have security cameras, right? Of course. Then start by checking them. You'll be able to see if anyone out of place visited or left with your things. Yes, yes, of course. The cameras. Thank you, Jack. We will start with the cameras. We will work through this, Jack. We will work through it together. Yeah, sure, Kitty. Say, why are you here anyway, Jack? As much as I may or may not believe in the Redeemer, I don't believe she would work on this small of a scale. She? You're speaking blasphemously, Kitty. And that's not an answer, Jack. Oh, you know, I just thought I would come by and see your new songs, with that album coming out soon. Haven't you already heard those songs? I gave you the early release album. Kitty looked at me in the mirror, and the crook of her eyebrow and the look in her eyes told me what I already knew. She didn't believe me. We both know that they're better live. Plus, I missed your face. You're starting to sound like Elle. Thanks? <laughs> well, Jack, as lovely as it was to see your face, I've got appearances to make. Those great walkers don't smooge themselves. <laughs> yeah, alright, Kitty. I'll see you soon. Ta-ta. Keep an eye out for thieves in the night. If my room isn't out of their clutches, then nothing is. Amontillado, Amontillado, that was her name. Amontillado, he called her name and he was lost. Amontillado, Amontillado, Amontillado. The next day I found myself in an upper hospital that was a not insignificant distance from my home. I was never sure what it was, but hospitals always set my teeth on edge. Maybe it was that too sterile smell, or the fact that I'd spent some not particularly fun hours here during my childhood, waiting for my mother's shift to end. Either way, I could feel the tension sitting in between my shoulder blades. My jaw tense enough it was giving me a headache. I showed the nurse at the desk my badge, and she cut just enough time from the stack of paperwork in front of her to look it over and wave me on. Charles Everdeen, room 217. A careful charge of Dr. Ferris. 
The door to his room was shut, and I slipped in quietly, looking down at the man covered in bandages, struggling to breathe even with the machines he was hooked up to. He was a sandy blonde, though I think I only noticed that because I was actively trying to avoid looking at the things he was missing. Investigator? I was told that you were coming up. Afternoon, Dr. Ferris. The doctor looked tired, but young. He must have been fresh out of school, with dark circles on a round face, hair slightly askew, though he was trying to tame it, and enough hope left to still offer me a smile. What can I help you with? Well, I guess you can tell me what's happened to Charles Everdeen, though it looks like some of it I can guess. Yes, well, Mr. Everdeen was picked up by an ambulance after someone found him stumbling down an alleyway. He was missing both of his hands, part of his right arm, and one of his eyes. Surgical-grade incisions, clean cuts, good bandaging from what I could tell. Though I don't know why whoever did this would bother bandaging him after... Well, we got him here, but barely. Any idea, I guess, why? I can't say for sure. We see very few things like this in Upper, though this kind of thing is more common in Lower, where I do my volunteer work. I, I think it's a flesh trade thing, though usually those victims, well, they don't make it. Do you think Mr. Everdeen will? We can hope. If he wakes from his coma, I'll be sure to call you. Thanks, Doc. Of course, Investigator. I moved borderline inappropriately fast through the halls of the hospital, and out the door onto the streets below. After I'd taken a few moments to breathe in the dirtier, humid air of the lower street, I rang Delilah. Hey, Delilah. Can I put in a request for files? Sure thing, hon. What files are you looking for? Charles Everdeen. Looks like a victim of, well, a butcher of some kind. Or like he fell into the gears of a lift. Either way, his crime technically occurred in Lower, so it'd be your purview. Mm. Well, don't that sound like it to turn your stomach? I'll get that request in for you, Jack. But I wouldn't be expecting anything quick if I were you. Oh? Why is that? You get in trouble for expediting things? Hardly. No, Smith just has all these files on lock and key, especially when it comes to sending them to you, Jack. By the Redeemer. Really? Yeah, Jack. He's still not exactly stoked about your... intervention on that case of his. Also, he brought a watchdog into the precinct, which you and I desperately need to talk about. I get that maybe, maybe, my actions were a little rash. But I mean, Have you tried? I don't know. Maybe apologizing to him. Whatever. Can you just put that request in for me? Already done. Thanks, Delilah. Mm-hmm. See you soon, Jack. Don't think you're getting out of talking about that watchdog. Yeah, alright. I hung up and scrolled through my phone for the information Ferdy had given me. Until I could get those police files on where Everdeen had been picked up, 
who had found him, etc. I'd reached the end of that line of the investigation. There were two other threads to pull, however, so I selected the one that was closest to me and headed in that direction. Vance Morristed was an older man, a widower, and a club regular that hadn't been at the Calico in almost a month. Ferdy had gone by his house, but he hadn't been home. Even though the feeling of the hospital still sat in my stomach and made me think about throwing up on the sidewalk, I steeled myself and turned in his direction. Surely whatever awaited me there was easier to deal with than this. Morristed was a widower, going on ten or so years now. It seemed that he'd never remarried, instead opting to live on his own in a comfortably-sized house in Upper, and attended the Calico shows almost every night. I opened the gate that led to his property, noting the camera set up around the place. I walked up the small garden-style path, though there weren't any alive or real plants in the yard. Just like Ferdy experienced, no one answered. I leaned over to peer through a window, but was unable to get any kind of good look through it. Alright. Well, I guess no one's home. Wait a minute. What do we have here? Is this lock broken? I knelt down so that the lock was at eye level, and realized that the door was only barely holding on, sitting ever so slightly crooked in the frame. Instead of knocking, I shoved in on the door. Without much pressure at all, it gave in, swinging open with a horrid groan and displaying a house that looked as though a rager had been held within its walls. The furniture was overturned, papers strewn about the place. The rug was piled on one end of the room as though someone had dragged something over it without caring that it had folded. I pulled my gun from its holster and carefully began to search the house. Mr. Morstead? Looks like blood on the ground. Knife missing from the block. Though maybe it just got lost when it was knocked to the ground. Outside of the kitchen and living room, there were no signs of a struggle, and despite there being a jewelry case in the bedroom filled with watches that cost probably three months of my rent, nothing seemed to have been taken. As I searched the bedroom for other potential missing valuables, I found a strange shrine-like area in the back of his closet. It was a series of photos, what appeared to be stills of girls and women tied up, being held at some location. They were printed on cheap paper, taped to the wall haphazardly. It was at odds with the neatness of the rest of the room, even the organization of the closet. I pulled my phone from my pocket and dialed the local wasp station. Dispatch. This is Investigator Jack Hart, Investigator Badge 34154 Delta. 
I'm at the residence of Mr. Vance Morstead, and it appears as though there's been a break-in. Maybe a murder or robbery. Or kidnapping. Stay on the line, investigator. We're sending a team to your location now. They should be at the residence soon. Very well. I descended the staircase from the upper floors of the house, holstering my gun, making my way into the middle of the living room to await the wasp detail. I clutched the phone to my ear and just barely noticed a small, black plastic piece that stood out on the white carpet flooring. It looked like some kind of fastener, or clip, though nothing that I had seen in the house would have had something like this on it. There's the bumblebee uniform. Alright, dispatch. Officers are knocking. Very well. Stay safe, investigator. I hung up, stepping forward to greet the officer that had just strutted into the room. He wasn't wearing the standard-issue helmet, and he had dark, glittering eyes and ruffled brown hair. If he didn't stink of upper, he might have been my type. Investigator? Call me Jack. Right. Jack. Detective Claremont of the Upper New York District Wasp Station. Your name is familiar. You make it to the other side of the grates ever? <laughs> no. I refrained from rolling my eyes, though the name was still itching at the edge of my brain. Right. Well, I've done a once throughout the house. No valuables appear to be missing, and whatever happened seems to be centered on these two rooms. There's some debris from an outside source on the floor of the living room, some weird photos that have been taped in the upstairs closet that look like stills from a movie or crime show, but that's as far as I've gotten. I saw cameras outside on the premises, but couldn't find whatever room the surveillance cameras were stored in. You've certainly got a lot done, investigator. Tell me, when did you get here? Half an hour, hour ago. And what exactly were you doing in this house? Waiting to be interrogated, apparently. My apologies. We just... We don't normally have lower investigators running around on the grates. I wish someone would tell me that. I've been spending far too much time up here. I walked back into the kitchen with the officer on my heels and pointed out the blood spots to him and his crew, which promptly began searching through the rest of the house. While waiting, I began glancing through the papers on the table, noting that the most recent dates were from about a month ago. I excused myself from the officers and wandered back to the front door and out to the mailbox, noting that he had gotten a recent notice that his mail would be held until he began collecting it from his box again, since it was packed full. I had no idea what kind of mail this man was receiving, but the fact that he was getting paper mail at all when most of satellite, well, most of lower satellite, exclusively got things over their tablet meant something. And if you were forking out money to kinds of enterprises that would send you honest-to-god mail, why the hell wouldn't you be collecting it? I came back inside, mostly ignoring the wasp detail as they continued to work, though I did catch Claremont give a slight side smile as his eyes shifted from me to the bloodstains on the floor that he was swapping. I opened the fridge door and almost immediately shut it as the smell of rotten food wafted from it. Covering my nose, I reopened the door, noting that the expiration date on the milk was several weeks ago. What did you find, investigator? Well, detective, it looks like maybe Mr. Morstead went missing... A month ago? At least several weeks. He hasn't collected his mail, the food in his fridge is rotten, and there's some dust beginning to pile in places where dust wouldn't likely be building up in an occupied house. Detective Claremont stood, gently shifting the papers on the table, as though he was corroborating the dates. Just as he opened his mouth to speak, another officer knocked on the door to the room. Detective Claremont? 
Investigator, we found the security room. I followed Claremont out of the room and up the stairs, pausing slightly on the landing. The wasp in the lead opened the door to what I had assumed was a closet, moved aside a shelving unit filled with boxes, and revealed an enclosed sitting area with two fuzzy screens. There was already another wasp sitting at the desk, and he waved us in. Claremont and I squeezed into the room, pressed shoulder to shoulder in the tight space. I was immediately glad I wasn't claustrophobic. We watched a little while of blank tape before we saw Mr. Morristead approach, grab his mail, and enter the house. A figure bolted down the sidewalk and crashed into the door just as Morristead was shutting it, flinging it open. The view of the security cameras was cut off by the swinging, broken door. But about half an hour later, the man emerged from the house again, carrying a large, black duffel bag that had a broken strap. The bag was stuffed, and obviously heavy, as the figure struggled to lift and carry it out of view of the cameras. Well, it looks like we know what happened to Mr. Morristed. Is this kind of surveillance setup common in Upper, or do you think he had something he was worried about? They aren't uncommon for people who live close to the train stations. I mean, the thefts aren't unheard of when you live close to- Places where lower citizens are. Yeah, I get it. Wait, that's not- Sure. Excuse me. Investigator. Look, Claremont, I've got a couple of other people to check on. Here's my card. Let me know if you find anything worthwhile up here, but given what's happened to two of the three people on my list so far, I'm getting a little nervous about the third. If the wasps think they can handle this one, I'm inclined to leave you to it. He took my card with a brief smile, shaking his head slightly and digging around in his pocket until he found his own crisp and shiny card to hand to me. <laughs> yeah, okay, investigator. I'll keep you in on the loop. Thanks, detective. Call me Cyrus. Sure thing, Claremont. See you around, heart. Walking fine and looking fly, there was once a handsome guy who thought he owned the whole world on his sleeve. He charmed them all in his wake, there was nothing he couldn't take until he took just one too much from me. All the things that go down When you're caught on the top side of town Who here knows all the things that go down When you're caught on the top side of town The final person on my list was someone named Philip Coswald. He was an investment guy that worked at a firm a little deeper into Upper. He had two kids, one of which was about to graduate college, and the other of which who was a decently successful entertainer that had gotten their start from the stage of the Calico. I had learned all of that from Ferdy's notes. He was nothing if not detailed. To the point that if I had to look at one more bulleted list today, I was going to light my tablet on fire. It was early evening when I arrived at Philip's house the sun lighting up the sky in brilliant hues behind the skyscrapers in the near distance. I was tired, and my feet hurt, but at least after this I could return to Ferdy with, well, mostly unfortunate news. 
I was mulling over the series of events that was apparently happening to the Calico regulars when Coswald's wife answered the door, ushering me inside the moment I showed her my badge. Hi, I'm- Yes, yes. Ferdy got a hold of me today and let me know that you were going to be coming by. Have you- have you found anything on Philip? Sorry, this is just the beginning of looking into his case. Can you tell me the last time you saw your husband? Oh, of course. Philip left for work in the morning, almost exactly a week ago, last Thursday. He was going to catch Kitty's show, like he did every Thursday night, but he never, never... Never made it home? Yes. It's not like him. He's always been a very punctual man. Is he the kind of man to run off? What? No! No, we are very happy. We have been for, for years. We'll have been married 30 years later this month. I glanced around the home, which was adorned with pictures of their family, some wedding photos that did appear to be from several decades ago, and miscellaneous artwork. The thing that immediately struck me was how short Philip Coswald was. I don't know what I had really been expecting, but when I'd heard that he was a big shot investor, I was expecting him to be imposing, or tall and skinny with a widow's peak and a shrewd face. This man was short, with a head of thick curly hair and a round body. In every photo he wore a pocket square. In every photo he beamed a genuine blinding smile. Does your husband have a pretty dependable schedule? Well, yes, like clockwork. He is a very meticulous man. Great. Can you tell me what trains he took? I assume he probably took the same train every morning. He did. He would always board the 7.15 train leaving Newburgh and take the 6 p.m. train from Upper New York East. What time would he get home? Usually around 1 or 2 in the morning. They were late nights, but I would wait up for him to make sure he made it safely. I, I know something is wrong. I can feel it. Will you, will you please just, please just find him? I'll do my best, ma'am. I'll be in touch. The train ride home was uneasy. For some reason, there was a paranoia that sat center mass, making me glance over my shoulder and fidget, fighting to keep my heart rate down. I took a few deep breaths, and when that didn't work, I called Ferdy. Hey, Ferdy. Jack, any news? Well, yeah, but it's not great. Oh, well then, it'd be best for me to hear it. Your man Morristed appears to have been kidnapped. The Upper New York Wasps are on the case, but it looks like he's been missing for about a month, so... I don't know, Ferdy. For that length of time, it likely isn't going to be great. I see. And Philip? Philip Coswell took the train to Kitty's show last week and didn't come home. He's been gone since. Right. Well, I... Ferdy, who are you talking to? The show is about to start. Oh, it's... it's no one. It's... Ferdy, I know when you are lying to me. Who could you possibly be talking to at this moment? It's... Um, he's Jack. Jack, what are you doing? Why are you calling Ferdy at this hour? Oh, 
Hey, kitty. I, um... I can tell when you're about to lie to me, Jack. Maybe rethink it. Shit. Okay, kitty. Look, Ferdy asked me to look into the disappearances of some of your regulars. I told them to talk to you about it, so don't blame me if this is the first time that you're hearing of it. Ferdy, what has been happening with my regulars? I'm going to... I'm going to let you go now. No, you're not. What did you find? Is there something I should be concerned about? <sighs> Alright. Well, the quick and dirty version of everything is Charles Everdeen got cut up for parts and is in an upper hospital. Vans Morstead has been missing for a month after getting beat up and dragged out of his own home. And Philip Coswell took the train to your show last week and didn't make it home. There was silence on the other end of the line for a few seconds, as Kitty undoubtedly practiced her breathing exercises, or listed off things that calmed her down in her head. Either way, I was glad that the only thing connecting us right now was an easily severable phone line. We will have to talk about this later, Ferdy. For now, Jack, I would be greatly obliged if you would look into this matter further. The missing men are two of my biggest sponsors, and I would prefer it if they would make it back to the Calico in one piece. I breathed a sigh of relief. Honestly, having Kitty ask me to take on more of a job was the best possible outcome for this. Sure thing, Kitty. The Upper New York Wasps are on the case of Morstead. That may be, but we both know the Wasps are largely useless. They're slightly more competent in Upper, but that's barely saying anything. Yeah. Okay, Kitty. I'll follow up on his case as well, but I wouldn't get your hopes up. Both of the two of them have been missing for a while. Do what you can, Jack. Now, unfortunately, I must go. Prep for the show begins now, and I have a lot to clear my mind of at the moment. Of course, Kitty. She hung up the phone, and I leaned my head back against the window of the train. While Morristed's disappearance wasn't going to be something that I could do much with, I could start with Coswald, if I could get the access to the train videos. Officer Smith, as Delilah had so graciously pointed out earlier, wasn't much of an option at the moment. My other contacts in the Wasp Force were mostly enemies. I dug out my wallet and slid the card of Detective Cyrus Claremont, Upper New York Wasp, into my hand. I fiddled with it for a moment. It rankled me to have anything to do with anything in Upper, but it especially irritated me to have to work with an Upper Wasp. By the sake of the Redeemer, they had their whole own system of rankings, some of which didn't technically exist in Lower. But at the moment, I wasn't in the mood to deal with Smith. My anger at him was slowly beginning to flake off in the guilt but I wasn't quite ready to see the point yet. He hadn't seen what I'd seen. He didn't watch the hands close on Amy's throat or hear her muffled cries as she began to choke. I dialed the number. Detective Claremont. This is Investigator Hart. I've got a favor to ask.
The tapes played on in the background, and I watched from my kitchen counter, halfway through my second pot of coffee, and in that weird, half-tired, half-wired state that made it feel like I could see sounds. I was going train car by train car, sifting through the hours of tape that fit into the time frame that matched Philip Coswald's schedule. His wife had given me a printed-out version of it, which I tacked next to my projector screen, and highlighted the important times where he took the train. Claremont had been kind enough to provide me with the tapes themselves, a favor now in return for a favor, sometime down the road. I reached the end of the time point on this car and changed tapes to the next. Then the next. Then the next. I was about to give up and go to bed when I saw a short man with a thick head of hair enter the train car. For the first few stops on his route home, the train car had only one other passenger. A young woman with spiked hair, tattoos on her face, and a leather jacket covered in patches that were blurry in the grainy train footage. They rode on for about 15 minutes when another person entered the car. They were wearing a tan overcoat, an orange scarf, and a large brimmed hat that obscured their face from view. After they entered, they took a seat directly beneath the security camera. The last thing that I saw before the screen went black was Philip Coswald look up with an alarmed expression. Then nothing. It was black for several moments, and I sped up the tape as much as I could. It stayed dark for a while, and then a face suddenly appeared, taking up the entirety of the screen and making me jump almost out of my skin. He wore a train system maintenance jumper, and was frowning as he adjusted the camera, huffed, shook his head, and then descended the ladder and left the train at the next stop. But Philip Coswald was gone, as was the person in the orange scarf and the girl with the punk jacket. I rewound it a couple of times to watch and found nothing. Just the two sitting together, the person entering the train car, the alarmed expression, the black screen. I rewound it again, zooming in on the new passenger as they entered, but unable to gain any identifying characteristics. If I couldn't figure out who this person was, or what happened to Philip Coswell through the videos on the train, maybe I could figure it out from the only other person who was a witness. This was, of course, assuming that whatever happened to Philip hadn't also happened to her. I got up close to the grainy image, squinting at the woman. She was dressed in a typical punk fashion, with the myriad of sewn-on patches on her jacket, embroidered phrases, and inked skin. I closed my eyes tightly, trying to force my humming brain to calm down, and opened them again, willing myself to notice something, anything that might be helpful. My eyes locked on a circular patch on her jacket. It was a clock, with the words, your time is running out, emblazoned around it. That in itself was not particularly interesting, but the time that the clock was showing was 12.10. I snapped a picture of the close-up and sent it to Elle. Hey Elle, is this patch what I think it is? Do you happen to know this girl? It looks like a ticket to me. I don't know her, but maybe Johnny does? I'll ask. Also, what the hell are you doing up right now? Isn't it past your bedtime? I'm working. What are you doing up? The train is rolling, Jack. You gotta board before it leaves the station. Bullshit. I board no train that shows up after midnight. Sure, whatever. Get some sleep. I'll ask her on the train and see if she's riding. Thanks. 
I took Elle's advice, though inadvertently. I didn't know I had fallen asleep until I woke up, my phone ringing loudly on the coffee table next to my face. Hello? Jack? Ah, oh, shit. Hey, Elle. So, I don't know your girl, but Johnny does. She's on the train. What? The train, Jack. She's here, now. What? Fuck! Where's the train? You looking for a ticket, Jack? Is a temporary ticket an option? <sighs> Alright, Jack. I'll text you an address. Be there in 30 minutes. It's the last stop of the night. I stood, the dirt crunching under my feet. The location Elle had sent me was hard to get to on time, but I'd made it, breathing hard and looking around confused, waiting for a train that apparently rode on the ground. I moved to stand on a cracked concrete pad with a steel street light that illuminated the stop with a weak yellow beam. There were buildings around me, but almost all of them were empty, broken things with only the occasional flickering fire to bring a little bit of light to the surrounding darkness. I could hear the thing before I saw it, chugging along two metal rails laid into the ground, the middle of them overgrown with weeds that bent under the steel behemoth as it approached. The streetlight above me flickered and gave out, and as I went to check my phone, I saw the screen fritz and turn black. It felt like a weight rolled in with the train as it approached. A blue check mark surrounded by a circle, emblazoned on the front, that lit up the tracks barely far enough ahead of it to matter certainly not bright enough to be seen from any distance away. One of the cars near me slid open, the metal door groaning in protest. A few kids in leather jackets and torn jeans jumped down from it, one of them eyeing me curiously before the man next to her caught her arm and directed her away, down the tracks and through an alley between two of the broken buildings. A slim figure leaned precariously out the door, hanging onto the edge of it with one hand and giving me a two-finger salute with the other. Hey Jack, you need a ride? Johnny, I'd say it's good to see you, but... But you're not interested in taking the train. Yeah, I know. Yeah, right. Well, it looks like we've got what you need. You best hop up. Train's rolling. Great. I found myself in a space lit by a single bulb, no other people inside except for me and Johnny, and a woman with perfect maroon lipstick and a crooked eyebrow. You could try not to look so smug, Elle. Why would I do that? I knew you'd be on the train one way or another. This doesn't count. It's for a case. Sure. Johnny walked back through the now swaying train car and opened the door at the rear of it. I could just make out the entrance to the car being pulled after it by the glow coming through the small window. The girl you're looking for is deeper in the train. Watch her step. Elle led the way, giving Johnny a kiss on the cheek before stepping precariously over to the other car and pushing the door open. I followed, a little leery of the ground rolling by beneath my feet as I passed over and ducked in, Elle closing the door after me. 
This car was a little fuller, and we dodged our way through it and to another door, stepping out once again into the satellite night, briefly catching the glimpse of the decrepit buildings passing by in my peripherals before I was once again swallowed by the train. How many cars are in this thing? About eight. I think that's the girl you're looking for, Seldy. She's in the sixth. L? Why the fuck is this an actual train? What? This seems massively impractical as the seat of a resistance movement. I don't know what you're talking about. The 1210 is just a nightclub. I mean, we've got a band in the eighth car and everything. You've got a band? Of course! Can't you hear it? The noise in the 8th car must be deafening. Sure. But the noise in the 6th and 7th? Perfect for private conversation. By the time we got to the 6th train car, my knees were shaking and I was getting a little motion sick. This car was much more stuffed with people, and the air had a strange, foggy feeling from the smoke of cigarettes and other drugs that hung around us. Selty was in the corner, smoking something that was definitely not tobacco and definitely not legal. Her eyes were distant, and though she was in the middle of a group of two to three people, she was obviously not paying attention to them. Hey! Selty, isn't it? Who's asking? My name's Elle. Selty looked sideways at Elle, but noted the 1210 patch that Elle had on the sleeve of her jacket and seemed to relax a little. Her gaze slid to me, and she eyed me up and down before releasing a cloud of smoke in my direction. Who's the stiff? This is a friend of mine. Jack. What do you want? We want to know what happened to this man on the train last week. I pulled the tablet from my pocket and showed her a screenshot of Philip Coswald on the train. The moment that I mentioned the man on the train, I saw her straighten up. She directed her gaze to the side and didn't bother to look. I don't know what you're talking about. You didn't even look at the photo. Fine. I don't know what you're talking about. Selty, we know something happened. We're just trying to find out how we can help. Elle crossed her arm so that the badge on her shoulder was even more prominent. Selty was tense, and she looked over at Elle, around the room, and back to Elle before leaning to the point that her head was practically resting on Elle's shoulder. I stepped forward crowding in next to them close enough that I could smell the smoke on her breath and Elle's subtle perfume. <sighs> Look, they said that they'd kill me. Who? The person in the orange scarf. The one that came into the car after Philip? <sighs> yeah. The one that broke the camera in the car. What happened after the camera went down? They jumped that guy, hit him with a stinger and knocked him out cold. He was a small guy, you know. Orange Scarf carried him off the train at the next stop and told me to mind my own business or they'd find me. Did you notice anything about this person, besides the scarf? <sighs> Not really. Their face was covered and I could tell that they were purposefully talking weird. They absolutely reeked of some kind of, like, flower perfume or something. But there wasn't anything else about them that really stood out. What stop did they get off on? I don't... I don't know. I wasn't really paying attention to the stops at that point. It was maybe 
five minutes after they got on the train. So like the next stop maybe? I don't know, it, it happened so quickly. This is my stop. Selty dug around in her pocket with a pen, caught Elle's hand, and wrote her number on it. That's what I know, but if you have other questions or, you know, whatever, give me a call. Well, I hope that was helpful. It's more than I had. I can tell I'm missing something, but by the Redeemer, I couldn't tell you what. So, what's next? You want to hang around for the band? No, no. I want off this train, but I don't want to make Celsi think I'm following her. Come on, Jack. L. Fine. Well, I'm going to go dance. If you want to come, I'll be in car eight. Otherwise, Johnny will stand with you in car one until the next stop. Great. I'll just crawl back up there. See you soon, Jack. Watch your step. I'm beginning to think that's code for something. Elle gave me a smile, opening the door at the back of the car. She was framed by the light from car seven that turned her hair almost white, casting her face in shadow. I don't know what you're talking about, Jack. We just want you to be careful. Where is he going? Where can he hide? The hound dog's howling, better run for your life. There was once a rich man who had everything. A pocket watch and a solid gold ring. But he was hungry and always craving. One day he thought he could cheat And save a buck on his company street And poison packs a punch when it's poured down the well Where is he going? Where can he hide? The hound dog's howling, better run for your life I sat in Kitty's dressing room on a lounge couch that was far too big to be practical, with Ferdy leaning back against the door and Kitty sitting at her vanity, pretending to do her makeup. I figured she was just trying to keep her hands busy. So, not great news, as I'm sure you figured. Naturally. Besides Everdeen, who's in the hospital, the whereabouts of Philip Coswald and Vance Morristed are unknown. Looks like they were both kidnapped, which in itself is pretty strange. Strange as in an unexpected coincidence? Or are you thinking that they're connected? Well, my first thought is that the two of them might have been targeted by the same guy. Maybe someone just has it out for your regulars? Then what happened to Charles? That doesn't fit the, the kidnapping spree. No, it doesn't. But it could just be that he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, not related at all to the other two. 
So what do I do about it? Do I need to start warning my regulars that they might be kidnapped on the train ride home from the club? Do I need to hire bouncers to walk each and every one of them home? I don't know, Kitty. I mean, giving them a heads up might not be a bad idea, at least until we can get some more information on who this person is, or what he's doing, or where he is, or even what- All right, Jack. I get it. Ferdy, can you please see to it that our regulars are warned about the apparent danger? Yes, ma'am. And try not to scare them off. Let them know that we have someone working on the case, and that we are working hard to secure their safety. Or something like that. Of course. Sorry about all of this, Kitty. It's not your fault this is happening. Feel bad for the poor little men out there risking their lives to see me. Yeah, sure. Well, with that, I guess I'll be on my way. You should stay. I'm premiering a new song tonight. Yeah? Yes. Sure to be one of my best. Are the drinks... On the house, darling, as always. Then yeah, I can stay for a little while. Oh, you little stair-stepper. Takes one to know one, Kitty. Please, I don't step. I leap. Every tear and covered up by When they promised they never would do it again 
Just remember all the good times, every tear and covered up eye, when they promised they never would do it again. First we set out all the ingredients, arsenic, sugar, stew. Don't forget to later I stood at the counter, my projector on in the background. It was hard to focus, since I still couldn't get the sound of Kitty's song from a few nights before out of my head. I leaned back, staring absentmindedly at the screen as new cycles spun. If your you roughly... Breaking news. Huh? A woman in Upper Satellite was arrested for murdering her husband. Elaine Granville appears to have poisoned him last night with a pie. Stuffed with, of all things, illegally sourced songbirds. We have a statement from her here. I don't, I don't know what happened. I don't even bake pies, especially out of songbirds. I don't know where it came from, please. I didn't, I didn't kill him. Illegal songbirds. That can't be a coincidence. Kitty's song came back into my head with a vengeance, and I rushed over to my stereo, searching for other songs of hers. I knew that there was something about Morstead's case that was familiar. I flipped through the songs quickly, making notes as I went. One of Kitty's earlier songs, Amontillado, was about an older man who was a kidnapper, taken from his apartment by the sister of one of his victims. The avenging angel left him to rot to death at a crypt. It was one of my favorites. The Woman in Orange, a song about a woman who follows a man stalking a girl onto the train and convinces him to come with her instead. The man is never heard from again. Top Side of Town, a song about a man who lures women from upper to lower and harvests them for parts in the flesh trade. Eventually, one of the victims that survives gets her revenge, subjecting him to the same torture he had been doling out. She wrote that one after my case with Amy. I was naive, it was true. Did the things that he told me to. I didn't really like to listen to it very frequently. And finally, brought to us by the news this morning, Songbird Pie. An abusive husband is poisoned by his wife with a delicious songbird pie. Kitty, but remembered that there was no way she'd be awake this early in the morning, and instead dialed Ferdy. Hello? Check. Ferdy, I've got it. Got it? Did you see the news this morning? The news? No, I've been working on the books this- Ferdy, someone died from being poisoned by a songbird pie. 
Didn't Kitty just premiere that song two days ago? The murderer or kidnapper or whatever, the man in orange is copycatting Kitty's songs. I'll leave that to you. I know what she's like when you wake her up. Meet me at the Calico as soon as you guys can. I called Claremont on my way to the Calico, and he agreed to meet us there. I sat at one of the tables, with Kitty and Ferdy, surrounded by empty seats turned upside down on the tables. A lonely bar, a vacant stage. Claremont entered and moved toward us, extending a hand. Detective Claremont, Upper New York Wasp. Detective, huh? Take a seat, Claremont. We think we know what's going on. Yeah, we tracked your message. We know roughly where the man in orange got off with Philip Coswald. There's evidence of him on the train station. But unfortunately, we lose sight of him shortly afterward in this radius, outlined in red on the tablet. From what I understand, you think that Morissette might be alive somewhere here? In the sewers. And how did you come to that conclusion? Because that's what happens in the song. Well, kinda. The sewer's gotta be the closest thing to a crypt that he would have access to in that radius. In the... wait, in the song? Look, Jack can explain it to you on the way. We don't have a ton of time before the stage opens, and I will not be late. Kitty stood abruptly. She wore what could only really be described as the upper version of what I was wearing. Though instead of Oxford, she was wearing heels, and her trench coat was sewn with small diamond accents. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, Wait, why are you coming? These are my regulars, abducted because of my songs. I will be the face that they emerge into the light to see. Like the heroines of my songs, I will be their avenging angel. (sighs) I already tried to talk her out of it, so I wouldn't press. Lead the way, Claremont. It wasn't long before we found ourselves standing over an open sewer entrance, looking down at it with a frown. Well, this looks like the only access hatch that a person could feasibly fit down in our radius. Should I call for backup? Do what you want. I'm going in. I will come as well. If there are two people down there, you will need the help. And I will wait up here. (laughs) I thought you wanted to be the face that they saw. Their avenging angel? Exactly. And that will best be done standing up here, at the top of the stairs, the light framed behind me. Not by crawling around the sewers, especially in this outfit. Think you'll be okay up here by yourself? (laughs) Of course. This is upper, and it's the middle of the day. Now get down there and find my regulars. You owe me big time for this. Anything you could want, Jack. 
What about me? What do I look like? The wasp payroll? Do your job. Well, it looks like we've got two options. Left or right. I'll go right. You go left? Here, take this radio. In case of emergency. Yeah, alright. Ferdy, come with me. We set off to the left, dodging down the black tunnels filled with the smell of waste and sulfur. It wasn't long before we came to a staircase and descended. I wasn't super familiar with how waste was treated in Nupper, and honestly, I wasn't stoked that I was getting an up-close look at it. Did you hear that? Hear what? Please, oh Redeemer, help us! Come on! Claremont, I can hear them. They're close to the entrance down the left tunnel and a partial flight of stairs. I'm on my way. I turn the corner, gun drawn and at the ready, to find Philip Coswell struggling against the handcuffs on his hands and feet, and Morristed lying beside him unconscious. Please, please help. I don't know. I don't know when he'll come back. Don't worry, Philip. We're here to help. I move to help him, shifting him to an upright position and then turning my attention to Morristed. His breath was shallow, and it was obvious he'd been down here for a while. Given his age, I was surprised he was still breathing at all. When was the last time you saw your kidnapper? Uh, uh, maybe uh, a day ago? I, I don't know. It, it, it's hard to tell time down here. Is there anything you can tell us about him? Any identifiers? Anything that he said to you? Here, let me get those handcuffs. I thought he was going to kill me. He kept saying that it was the song. The song's idea. The song's idea? Yes. That she was telling him to do it through her songs. What the hell? Kitty! We'll be right behind you, Jack. Get them out of here. Kitty, are you okay? He has my scarf. What? That, that man. The man in orange, as you have called him. He was wearing my scarf and my, my perfume. I could smell it on him. Did you see him? What happened? He snuck up behind me while you were in the sewers and tried to grab me. What about the gunshots? I fought my way free and cast him to the ground. As he struggled to his feet, I had just enough time to pull my purse pistol and shoot the bastard. I think one may have even hit him. Freeze! There with me. Get a team down there. There might be something useful. Medics, take these two to the hospital. I'll alert the families. Jack, Kitty. Are you all right? I heard the gunshots. Claremont offloaded Morristed into the ambulance, and Ferdy helped Coswald up the steps and shut the doors behind him. As the ambulance took off down the alley, and the other wasp jumped to do Claremont's bidding, I put a hand on Kitty's arm, an idea just beginning to form. When we were down there, Coswald said that the man in orange said something about how he was doing what the song said, right? 
Yes, something about how she was telling him what to do. Exactly. He's followed through with the plotlines of four of Kitty's songs. Four that we know of. Fair. Four that we know of. Thing is, Kitty, how many other murder ballads have you written? Far too many, Jack. They're the bread and butter of the calico. What are you getting at, Jack? That we're simply fucked? I think we try and force his hand. We, and by we I mean Kitty, writes a new song with a plotline that leads him to us. It's obvious we aren't going to be able to get to him. Alright, alright. I see what you're saying. Let's say this works. We can get him into a location, and that we can arrest him. Where exactly might that be, though? It's not like we can have him waltz himself down to the WAF station and turn himself in. My dressing room. What? My dressing room. He already knows how to get in. I mean, he stole my scarf and my best perfume. And it's not the kind of place that you would expect to get jumped by the wasps. He managed to dodge our security cameras, and I think he knows it. We can use that to our advantage. The only thing that makes a man more cocksure is when he thinks he's got you over a barrel. We can hide you in the closet or bathroom and write a song that... Oh, yes, I think I've got an idea. I'll need a week. Kitty, we need this song, like, tonight. Tonight? Jack, please, it takes longer than that to make the caliber of song that my fans expect. Your fans are dying. I think that they'll be okay with it just this once. Picture this. The bar is packed, people lounging in booths, pressed against the stage, dancing in the background. Ferdy is glancing nervously around the room, searching for an orange scarf, though he knows that the man wouldn't be stupid enough to wear it here. Kitty stands front and center on the stage, in a black, skin-tight dress, with black lace gloves, and a smile that could melt the heart of anyone who looked upon it. Yes, yes. You all know that I love you. I love each and every one of you. I was inspired recently by an event that I will not bore you with the details of. Inspired to write a new song with a special message. I wanted to wait to show it to you, but well, how could I keep anything from you?
I waited in the closet as I heard the music fade. I couldn't make out the words that Kitty said from the stage. More, I could just hear the sound of the applause, and underneath it, the sound of a door shutting. Now in the dressing room, Kitty threw her arms around Ferdy in an embrace. I could see their hands trembling. I could hear the low tones of Ferdy's voice as he soothed her. Ever so briefly, I caught sight of Claremont, holed up in the bathroom on the other side of the room. He gave a thumbs up and a smile before the door shut too far for me to see him anymore. We waited tensely as Kitty brought Ferdy over to the plush couch and sat next to him, his hands clutching hers tightly as he offered her a strained smile. I had always told Kitty that she would be with Ferdy, to which she told me that she didn't sleep with men that she actually liked. I didn't hear the footsteps. In fact, I didn't hear anything. It was Kitty's face, that suddenly drained of color, that tipped me off to the new presence in the room. The man had Kitty's scarf wrapped around his waist like a belt, and as he walked in, the stench of her perfume permeated the air to the point that I thought I would choke on it. I got your message, queen. What? What? What message? You need my help to be free of this... this man. This life. I thought... I told you to bring a knife. That's what was in the song. Yes, well, my queen, this is all that I had on me. Get on the ground. We've got you surrounded. No! I'll take my queen with me. Kitty, watch out! Ferdy came out of nowhere with a haymaker, catching the man in orange unaware and knocking him soundly in the side of the face. He rolled, tumbling to his feet and bolting through the bathroom door. You're under arrest for the kidnappings of Philip Coswold and Vance Morristed, the murder of Leonard Grandhild, and the attempted murder of Charles Everdeen. No, you don't understand. Queen, please, tell them. Your songs are true. These men deserved it. These men were wonderfully loyal patrons of the Calico who deserved no such thing. These songs are written about people like you. People that think they are above the Redeemer-given rights afforded to all of us. Maybe, while you're in prison, you can learn about what a metaphor is and how it is used. She slapped him so hard that he was almost knocked from Claremont's grip, spun on her heel, and exited the dressing room. If you'll excuse me, I need a martini. Ferdy, help me round up the charity. Funerals aren't cheap and neither are hospital bills. It's the least we can do for the people left in this monster's wake. The Calico stands by her patrons. Back up? Yep. Had them undercover in the crowd, waiting. Smart. I think that might be the nicest thing you've ever said to me, investigator. It's the only thing you've done worth saying something nice about. Ouch. Investigator Hart. Speaking. This is Dr. Ferris. Charles is awake. But he's not stable. I'll be there as soon as I can. Hey, wait, do you- Did he call us, Claremont? But don't worry. I've got your number.
I ran into the hospital, barely showing the front desk person my badge and bolting up to the room where Charles Everdeen was dying. As I came in, Dr. Ferris looked up at me from behind a war of activity. I ignored what he tried to say and dodged my way to Charles' bedside. Charles's one eye was looking around frantically, and when it settled on me and the badge in my hand, he reached out as much as he could with the stump of his arm. I didn't hear what he said at first, so I leaned close to him. His voice was raspy, dry, pained, and fading so, so quickly. He's done it before. I know. I know. We've got the man who lured you to lower. We... No. Not... What? The man with the glasses. From lower. The man that... That sold me. <coughs> he forged <coughs> the my No. No, Charles. Hang on. A nurse moved me out of the way, and I let her pull me back toward the hall as Charles began to flatline. His lips moved, though his eye was now just staring up the ceiling. I watched the last words leave his lips before he faded. He'll do it again. I stood on the street outside the hospital, pipe lit by shaky hands, the tobacco in my mouth not serving to wipe away the bitter taste of bile on my tongue. Jack, I told you I- I have a lead. I don't- I have a lead on your guy, the, what did you call him? Flesh trade counterfeiter? What? A man by the name of Charles Everdeen was cut up for parts in an alleyway. He said a man in glasses processed him, that he'd done it before, that he'd do it again. You think it's the same guy? The body's wounds were almost surgical, like someone who knew what they were doing. That was a trademark in your cases, right? In addition to the impeccably forged documents, but I, I don't know, Smith. By the Redeemer, I kind of hope it is. There can't be two people like that running around, can there? I wish I could say no, Jack. There's a man you can question in custody in the Upper New York Wasp Clinic. I know the detective on the case, I can get you in. Thanks, Jack. It's the least I can do. I'll, I'll let you know what we find out. Yeah, do. I hung up sitting for a moment on the bench out front of the hospital and looking up at the pre-dawn sky. If this was the same guy that had come for Amy, I'd... I'd let him escape. The death of Charles Everdeen? And only the Redeemer knew who else? It was on me. Before we get into the credits, a special thank you for our patrons on the case file tier. Thank you, John McCary. Thank you, Sergei Kochergan. Thank you, Darren Leonhardt. And thank you, Dom Duhamel. Thank you to all of you. 
it's nice to be in business, and we couldn't have gotten this far without you. This episode, the name Selty, was submitted by Fact Dude. Heartbeat Podcast was written, edited, and produced by Aaron Bentley. Our sound engineer is Bella Bongiorno. The amazing voice of Jack Hart was voiced by Becca Austin, and Philip Coswald, Charles Everdeen, and Johnny were voiced by Levi Austin. L and the Reporter, voiced by K.B. Kern. And Dispatch, the Man in Orange, Officer Smith, and the Wasp in a Cop Car were voiced by Jace Flanagan. Delilah was voiced by Claudia Richberg. Mrs. Coswald and Selty were voiced by Jaden Rummond. And Detective Claremont was voiced by Justin Kern. Kitty and Mrs. Grandel were voiced by Ali Soretto. Ferdy, Clint the Bouncer, and Random Officer were voiced by Logan DeSoto. And Satellite was voiced by our own Aaron Bentley. The jazz music and murder ballads were written by Ali Soretto, and you can find her music on her SoundCloud linked in the show notes. The musicians featured in the songs Voices of Satellite were friends of the show Riley Hodgson and Jake Berquist. The theme song and some background music were written, produced, and performed by Veronica Harris. You can find her music also linked in the show notes. Thank you all, and may you all bask in the glory of satellite.